My Adapt Live retreat is coming up in just a month, and I wanted to share a little more about the perspectives and tools we'll explore at the event to help you decide if it's a good fit for you. The theme of the retreat is getting unstuck, but how do we do that? It starts with mindfulness and self-awareness. If we're not aware of our habitual patterns and how we get stuck in the first place, we cannot get unstuck. We'll have mindfulness practice each morning, both seated and moving, and mindfulness and self-awareness will be closely integrated with everything we do together throughout the retreat. We'll have breakthrough sessions where we explore several different tools for working with a particular issue. These include changing your lens to change your life, understanding how the lens we see through affects our being and doing, and simple tools to create and work with multiple perspectives. Radical self-care, you'll learn practical strategies for how to make time for yourself even when there's no time. Shrinking the change, breaking up large change into smaller and more manageable steps is a powerful way to get closer to our goals. You'll have a chance to practice doing this at the retreat. Reclaiming focus, we live in a world of nearly constant distractions. Getting unstuck requires us to reclaim our focus and attention. And we'll practice this together at the retreat and discuss strategies for how to maintain focus when you return home. We'll also have two optional activity periods each day where you can go on guided hikes, do a yoga class, get a massage at the spa, or just relax by the pool. And we'll have live music and celebrate together during the evenings. If this resonates with you, I hope you can join us at the Adapt Live Retreat in September over Labor Day weekend. We still have a few spots left, so I'd love to meet you in person and spend some time with you in beautiful little Cottonwood Canyons. Just go to cresser.co slash adapt live. That's A-D-A-P-T-L-I-V-E to learn more and grab your spot. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I'm really excited to welcome Katie Bowman as my guest. I'm sure many of you have heard of Katie. She's a well-known author, speaker, and leader in the movement movement, if you will. Uh, she's a biochemist by training, but she has really thought deeply about changing the way we move and think about our need for movement. She's written eight books, including Move Your DNA, uh, which have been translated into more than a dozen languages worldwide. And she teaches movement globally, talks a lot about the dangers of too much sedentary behavior. And I really like her broader, more expanded approach to movement and, and, and getting away from thinking about movement solely as exercise and this sort of chore or grind that we do because we know it's good for us into really kind of embracing a holistic approach to movement as, as our birthright as human beings. So uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will as well. Let's dive in. Katie, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So maybe we could start with um, just a little bit of background. You have a, a very holistic approach to movement that I've always appreciated. Sometimes I think, you know, talking about exercise and movement gets, sometimes it, it, it goes down in directions that are not that interesting to me, actually, because it's, it, it can just be sort of like uh, a chore or something that we do because we have to, or, um, you know, I think a lot of people have a relationship with physical activity and movement that, that comes more from a sense of obligation than a sense of pleasure of being in a human body. And I know that that's really a focus of your work, but how, how did you get interested in this 
approach that you have to movement? Like what, what really started that for you? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say because it, I've been doing it for so long. I mean, my understanding of movement has definitely evolved over a couple of decades. You know, I'm, I'm trained as a biomechanist at a university. So the understanding of movement is really exercise or research centric, very health centric. Um, and I definitely started there just enjoying fitness. Um, but I really took an interest in injury in graduate school and, and maybe in between, or I think I just ended up working with a lot of people who were injured because I was someone who was degreed in exercise. And so you tend to get all the people who need more than general fitness, who need some uh, special populations. But then after doing it for you know a few years, I was like, everyone's sort of a special population in their own way. What we need is a more nuanced understanding of movement. And it just evolved from there. Just my own interest. I mean, I'm very much um, kind of a nerd in that this is my science and I want to know it really well. And so part of my approach has come from simply understanding what movement is in a very broad way and then always presenting it in a not the narrow exercise or even physical activity way because those are three different they're three different phenomenon and there's more phenomenon in there still. So I think it just comes from that. It just comes from talking to a lot of people over a lot of years and appreciating the complexity and trying to distill it down so people can find whatever their motivation is for moving more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it, let's start with defining some terms because we just used three there and you said there's even more nuance within those categories. So movement, physical activity and exercise, how do you define those terms? What's the difference for you in those terms? And then if there is additional nuance that, that, uh, within those categories, what would it be? Well, so movement's the broadest term, you know, it's just really any physical change in the shape of your body or the tissues of your body. So that's, that's really going to be all encompassing. And then physical activity is a research term that looks at those types of movements that use the musculoskeletal system and also will utilize a more than baseline amount of kilocalories or kcals. Like you're, you're talking about something where you're burning some calories a little bit. Um, so one exercise that wouldn't fit into that would be, or one movement that wouldn't fit into the category of physical activity would be, you know, if you're climbing on a bar that bar pushes into your skin. The fact that your skin and tissues are deformed by something pushing into that, that doesn't use the musculoskeletal system per se, but it still changes the shape of all those tissues. Um, and then exercise is another clinical term that in exercise is a subset of physical activity. So it still has to meet the conditions of using your musculoskeletal system and utilizing calories, but it's even a little bit more narrow in that it's a period it's a bout of movement that is usually has some parameters that are predetermined that you've pre-selected before you start it. So you've picked the duration that you're going to do it, the mode that you're going to do it, like what you're going to do. Um, usually the intensity that, of which you're going to do it. And then, um, and you're usually doing it for the purpose of improving your health, right? So it has a goal associated with it that is speaking to improving your physical fitness in some way. So an example of 
riding your bike for five miles at a certain rate, you know, like on the weekend, because it's good for you, that would fall into the category of exercise. But you could take that exact same bike ride, even with the intensity and the, and the duration, but you're going to use it as transportation. You're riding your bike to work. That's what moves it out of the category of exercise. Something else is getting done during that period of time. So you can have exercises or movements that fit and pierce multiple categories, but intention has a lot to do with it. And then I'll just give like one other example of a category that I haven't yet defined publicly very well or in any of my books. And that is the category of labor. So labor would be another subset. It would often meet the parameters for physical activity, but it's done for a different purpose, right? It's, you know, it has, there's, a, there's other parameters that we can talk about in terms of why we would move, but that would be an example of an emerging category, I guess. Or a, a re-emerging category. <laughs> well, it's never gone away, but I don't know if, like when you look at movement research, it's not being called out necessarily as, right. as, um, I was just thinking of our ancestors who, you know, where a lot of their movement, it seems to me, I mean, our distant ancestors revolved around getting things done, you know, building shelter, migrating from one place to the next, hunting, gathering, etc. that was not for pleasure per se, and not sure. certainly not for any related health goal that they had, but just because that was inherent to their life. And, and yeah, and I, I like that as a category because someone who's a forest ranger, for example, is going to have a very different experience in their body day to day than someone who's working at a desk uh, at, at Google or something like that, it, just from the nature of their work. There's this other category that I've heard more recently in the, in the, in the literature, which is non-exercise physical activity. And, it, you know, it, this isn't my area of expertise, but again, it seems like this was coined to dis differentiate between the health impacts of periodic exercise. Let's say you go to the gym for, you know, an hour, three days a week. And then the rest of the time you're just sitting at, at your desk job. I've seen a lot of studies suggesting that that, is harmful because, or it's not, uh, it's not exercise is harmful, but the, but set, being sedentary all that time is harmful, even in, even if you're getting the recommended amount of exercise weekly and that people need to also be thinking about their non-exercise physical activity. What happens outside of those distinct periods of exercise and outside of the periods of being sedentary is also very important to health. Do you consider that as well? Or do you just, does that sort of just blend into physical activity overall for you? No, non-exercise. I mean, exercise is a subcategory of physical activity. So everything, I, I think in terms of circles, so you have a giant circle movement, labeled movement. There's a smaller circle labored, labeled physical activity that sits inside movement. And then there's a smaller circle exercise that sits in set inside of physical activity, but anything that's inside the physical activity circle, but outside the exercise circle is non-exercise physical activity. So yes, right. that category is there because of, uh, because there's been such a focus on exercise as the only means to moving our bodies more. There's been an understanding of like, oh, it turns out that 
exercise, you know, in an environment of sedentarism the rest of the time still doesn't pay off as much as exercise surrounded by more movement throughout the day, or also simply a lot of movement throughout the day. Um, and then also because, you know, labor as a category isn't really only for the ancestors. When you talk about, take a global perspective or even a broader uh, North American perspective, there are many people who labor for a living. They wouldn't be sedentary like desk workers, but desk workers are a very small population. There's a lot, I mean, dishwashers, bartenders, farmers, field workers. There are many active jobs out there. And so it's just another drill down of going, oh, we didn't understand really the whole phenomenon when we started creating terms and solutions. Now we understand more. So of course, you're going to find that the science becomes more complex because it because more parts are more elements are understood now. Let's dive in a little bit to sedentary behavior. I know that's the focus of your work. Um, it's, it's really kind of an epidemic. Um, I just saw a study much it came out yesterday, so you may not have seen it. it was, this is um, out of Finland, and it was uh, looking at the impact of sedentary time on type 2 diabetes. And the researchers took a group of people who were mostly sedentary, and then they asked the intervention group to basically spend one hour less a day being sedentary, just using light physical activity, not exercises, you know, non-exercise physical activities. And they had pretty significant reductions in blood sugar, improvements in insulin sensitivity, and improvements in liver health just in, I think it was a 30-day, no, it was a three-month intervention. And of course, there are lots and lots of studies like that. So, you know, what, what are the trends with sedentary behavior over the past couple of decades? And, and why is that such a unique problem for human beings? Well, I mean, the trends are just sort of been increasing and it's, it's on a global scale that it's increasing. You know, I break down the transition. I mean, humans, if you look at the timeline, there's sort of been a steady transition towards less movement, but it is definitely um, accelerated in the last handful of generations, starting with the industrial revolution. And then you get to the technological revolution or the computer revolution. And then I do think that smart technology, which seems ubiquitous and like that it's been with us forever is like 10 years old. And like, that's been another um, exponential growth factor really for sedentarism. So it's just, I mean, my view on it is just seeing that it's in, not only increasing the rate of it increasing is increasing. Um, and then I think that the pandemic created even more we I don't think that I don't think that everyone sees everything in terms of movement but I certainly do um, convenience you can think about convenience um, as saving time but it also is something that saves movement so as we've gone to uh, less movement for individuals you know we, we already don't grow much of our food you know we're already getting to get it from the grocery store which is sort of new. It doesn't feel new, but if you just interview your grandparents or your great-grandparents, you're going to find that we live in sort of a novel environment. And we've gone from like not growing our food to buying the stuff in the grocery store to now buying the 
chopped thing, the already chopped thing in the grocery store to buying the already cooked thing in the grocery store to uh, now parking in front of the grocery store and having the already cooked thing brought, you know, brought to your car. And then now we can just get the full meal. Like there's no labor really involved in the food system for many individuals and food and movement used to be in a direct relationship. I mean, the reason you moved in the first place was so you could eat. So as we've been the animal that's really shifted how we relate to stuffs on earth, important stuffs, the most important probably being food, um, but there's other stuffs too, like clothing and shelter. As we've changed the fundamental nature of that relationship, movement seems to be the thing that is lost the most. I mean, I think nutritionists would argue like it's nutrition that's being lost the most. And I would agree with that, but I would also say that it's movement too. And because a mechanical environment is, is a constant, relatively speaking, you've altered the mechanical environment much more than you have altered the nutritional environment. And then I would also say that my hypothesis for what's driving this, all these things really has a lot to do with this paradox that we have, which is why while human bodies require a tremendous amount of movement, we're simultaneously wired to avoid it when we can. So as we are more clever and build more environments for which movement is not a requirement at all, we take that opportunity every time because we don't really realize what we're trading off. And so I'm just here to name it. Like that's what we're trading off movement. Yeah. It's, there's so much there to unpack, and I want to I want to investigate some of what you said um, further because I think it's really really important. Uh, have you seen the movie Wall-E? You know the Pixar mm -hmm. film. Sure. So our daughter is ten. We we she had never seen it, so we watched it together as a family. This was yeah, it was made quite a while ago now, but it's amazing how prescient it really was, because for those who haven't seen, you know, this takes place in a future where humans are living on spaceships and they're basically conveyed around the spaceship on a on something that seems like a conveyor belt and all of the you know they they're drinking all their meals through a straw they have a screen in front of their face the entire time and they never leave their sort of lounge chair that gets conveyed around on the spaceship and when you were talking about the impacts of covid and the progression from growing our own food harvesting our own food chopping and making our own food to now, you know, that eventually going to a grocery store and buying those same things to then buying chopped up things so we don't have to do that. Picking up food from the grocery store and now, of course, with like Uber Eats and Instacart and all these services, not even that. It's just a question like this is the motion. Yeah, your fingers. <laughs> for, exactly. for those who are not watching, <laughs> then we're not doing video, but I'm moving my finger on my phone to, to that's the extent of physical activity that is now required to get a meal. And as you said, in an evolutionary setting, you know, we were uh, ad adapted to spend as little energy as possible getting our food because, you know, that's just, you know, we had to spend so much energy in general that when, when we could conserve it, we would. And that was just a question of evolutionary fitness. But when that sort of innate biological hardwired desire meets modern technology and meets a global pandemic, which isolated a lot of people and created curbside delivery and you know all of these sort of delivery services, it's really a 
a confluence of variables that doesn't really work out in our favor in terms of our, our basic need for human movement. And, uh, you know, I've been seeing a lot of articles about the emerging laptop class and the kind of bifurcation between people who are able to do that, who are able to stay at home, work on the computer, order food, you know, and do all that. And then the people who are out there running around doing those deliveries and and still at the grocery store and, and it's, still it's, growing the food and still harvesting the food and all and absolutely the things for the laptop. I mean, there's definitely people still moving. So it, it seems like there's a growing bifurcation um, that's happening in our economy, both here in the U.S. and elsewhere between those different groups of people. And I'm I'm curious what just from a sociological perspective, research perspective, what kind of differences we're going to see um, in, in the health and well-being of those folks just from from this one variable, you know, changing the amount of movement that is required on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, I think about stuff like that all the time. Uh, you know, like there's a lot of there's a lot of novel things happening right now. You you know, I just finished um, writing a book about children and really wanted to call out because I don't know if it's super evident, even though it is, I don't know if how aware of it we are, like this is the first generation of children that were born into smart technology. Like they're sort of the digital native group here. Um, and there is not a real broad understanding of what that will look like going forward. Um, so yeah, lots of questions about, as always, you know, humans have always been changing and cultures have always been shifting, but, you know, we are in our culture in our time. So it'll be interesting to, as we become the elders to see like, yeah, that's why, that's why we didn't want to do that. You know, perspective is, is handy. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, given that we are as humans a little bit wired to be lazy, you know, for this just due to our evolutionary programming. And given that historically, and I think this is changing thanks to people like you, but there's just a lot more options now for movement. There, there's a lot more focus, I think, recently on finding ways of moving your body that are satisfying and fun and not just going to the gym and being on the treadmill. Uh, not that I have anything against that necessarily, but, you know, maybe better than nothing. But let's say someone is sedentary or they're, you know, they know they need to incorporate more movement, physical activity into their life, but they have a lot of resistance because maybe they've been conditioned to believe that that's what is, it matters is going to the gym and getting on the treadmill or doing the Stairmaster or whatever it is. How do you work with somebody like that? What do you suggest that they do to find their relationship with movement, their body, physical activity, one that they can really develop over time, that can really be satisfying and, and fun, and, and then that they'll be way more likely to stick with because it's something that's actually engaging for them? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that one, just understanding that equal to our wiring for laziness is our wiring, you know, outside of disability, like we have wiring for a tremendous movement uh, capacity. Um, that's going on alongside our uh, also simultaneous wiring for rest and to take ease. Um, but to recognize that if you're not really moving to the amount that you want yet, 
that it probably has to do with you not finding like your movement jam, so to speak. For many people, exercise is their movement jam. Like, or like if you grew up playing sports, you just, you, you have found that internal reward system from doing that. But there are many other ways of being physically active that fit into the activities of your daily life. And so the way that I approach it is by showing all of the ways. Like if you are a naturey person, if you're a gardening person, um, if you like animals, if you have a young family, if you are a dynamic ager, you want to get started by finding the things that you're already doing in life that you could maybe reverse engineer to find their more movement rich version, right? So, so many tech, we, we use so many technologies in our life. We don't even really recognize them as technologies. We've started to call just like um, digital stuff technologies, but your backpack is a technology. You know, the shoes that you put on your feet, those are technologies. They're the techne of the people. So um, looking around at the things that you have in your life that are movement saving and removing some of those. Um, and then, yeah, trying to find, I, I always have people start with, what would you like to be doing with your body? Because while people rarely put exercise outside of those who are already exercising, if you make a list of really like what would constitute your best day, chances are there's a movement component there. Um, and so to make that your focus of what you're training for, like even if it's spending time with my significant other or grandchildren, or I, I've always wanted to travel to this place, it's like put it in terms of movement and then once you have an intrinsic desire to do something and can learn to see the movement elements of it, it makes prioritizing movement a lot easier. It moves it out, it even moves it out of health because I think that health itself is a very narrow niche. Like it's not, um, it's not that it's not a priority. It's just that it's not a worldview for everyone. Like that was something that I really had to learn. Like, oh, there's people who are, into their health. And then there's people who are into other things, but again, movement's ubiquitous. So you have to find out like, where is the movement in the thing that you are into because it is the portal that that will be the portal for you adhering to regular movement, but more importantly, wanting to move, not just continuing to do something that, you know, you heard on a podcast that you should, or, or, read in a study that it would be better for you if you did, you're connecting it to how you personally view what makes your life a good life. So um, have you read Atul Gawande's Being Mortal? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I feel like if, if anyone who's read that book, it's sort of aligning with that. Like as humans move through, there's going to be inevitable decline that just comes with aging, but at every stage you can have your optimal experience. And when you reframe it, your pursuance of movement as not just like adding longevity or freedom from disease, but just enhancing the celebratory parts of your life that you love and want to do at greater volume, that, that to me has um, really changed um, the importance of movement for people. Yeah, I love that. Um, I mean, it's definitely consistent with my own experience. I, I started with sports and surfing and movement for me has always had a strong outdoor and nature component. So like, I love the experience of connecting with nature, but I like to do that when I'm moving more than I like to do that when I'm sedentary in nature. And so a lot of, you know, my movement pra practices have been outdoor activities and 
and also there's all, there's a strong component of fun, um, which is is important for me. And over time, because I know the health benefits of movement and I know that I feel better, I will also, if I'm not able to do any of those fun, exhilarating outdoor activities that I enjoy, I will go to the gym. Like I went to the gym today because um, it was snowing, all the ski resorts are closed, I couldn't ride my mountain bike or do the things that I would typically do. So I went and did some squats and deadlifts and Yes, I, I still enjoy that and I do it because I it feels good and I know it's good for me. But if I have to choose, you know, if I go skiing in the backcountry in a given day or go do deadlifts, I'll go skiing every time. And it's it's interesting to hear you phrase it that way, because even though I'm obviously into health and I think about health a lot, that's often not the motivating factor for me when it comes to movement. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's been so consistent for me. It's that there's other, I don't want to say that health, you know, desire for health is not a deep motivation. It definitely is, but there's something that feels even more basic and fundamental to how I pursue movement that I think is, is more what you articulated there. It's just like part of the experience of being human and, and connected to a lot of things that I really enjoy and that improve my quality of life on a moment to moment basis not even thinking about what's going to happen 20 years in right. the future. Well, and another, just listening to you talk, another one of my approaches to helping people move more is recognizing that, so it sounds like you grew up active. A lot of people didn't grow up active. So they have a, a negative relationship with movement, one, because maybe it wasn't their family culture. And then there's a lot of um, lack of skill and embarrassment that comes in like movement is put into schools and rightly so if someone if a child's going to be someplace all day it should be a dynamic space but as the schools made a choice to really feature sports as movement if you weren't if you didn't come from an environment that nurtured those skills or grant them um, genetically so to speak then you have sort of a deficit and then you have a negative relationship and then you have pain or you have a lack of just awareness of your body. And then to start it as an adult becomes a challenge or even a teenager becomes a challenge. So helping people learn about how all of their parts can move in a, you know, in your own house, try this. Then you start to get some of that creative fun spark of like, I'm interested, like everybody, I'm interested in me, you know, like people are interested in themselves and knowing themselves. So it becomes sort of a, an exploration that way. And as they get these small successes with these very small exercises, they're called corrective exercises because we think of them as like, well, these would be the exercises you would need to do. So you could graduate to doing the real exercises over here, but it's really the same thing. It's a chance for you to overcome an obstacle or a hurdle or learn something new. And as they do, they then start to look for opportunities to explore movement in other ways. And that's, that's been another approach is to help people transition from being a non-mover to a mover. So on that note, I wanna talk a little bit about maybe the landscape of movement, if you will. Um, sure. Some of the, uh, uh, again, going back to sort of the, the exercise craze of the 1980s and 90s and, and like things like the treadmill and the Stairmaster where you're, you're doing something that's extremely repetitive, you know, a similar motion on a flat, non-variable surface. 
and sometimes only moving certain parts of your body and not your whole body. You know, this has also been a focus of your work, like this, like moving your whole body and like the difference between the mechanical and built environment and the natural environment where you have hills and ups and downs and rocks and things like that. So how does that play into this conversation and, and what's what's important um, as people begin to explore their their relationship with movement in a in a broader context or a more holistic way? Yeah, so you don't only need to move your whole body, you need to move all of your parts. And so it's not only that we need to move more, a lot of us don't move a lot of our parts very well. Like our movement diets aren't very good. So if you tend to take the same mode of exercise again and again and again, some of you is getting the benefit from the fact that you moved at all, but many parts of you haven't been moved at all. And so what happens is, yes, you are a whole body, but the, your physical experience is also made up of how the individual parts of you are doing. It's rarely our whole person that's sick. It can often be a small area. So it's to recognize that you've got this dual phenomenon going on. Um, and what terrain does or movement landscape is the more complex the landscape, the more parts it moves of you. So if you just take a walk on in your neighborhood, if it's cemented, that moves you in a particular way, but you can take that exact same walk in something that's got more complex terrain and more of you will move for that same bout of movement. So it's just recognizing again, that um, the movement of our individual parts or e all of our individual parts need to be nourished by movement, not only our, our whole person. And so to hold that when you're choosing, do I go out for the same mode of exercise that I always do that I love? Because it's like food. You have foods that you love and you wanna eat again and again, but you're gonna find some nutrient that you're missing and then you need to update your diet or maybe pull back on the thing that you love a little bit because you can get too much of a good thing, so to speak, uh, certainly mechanically and to recognize that your tissues are adapting to what you're doing. So it's just this idea, again, of more nuance when it comes to movement that it's a part by part phenomenon as well. I like the analogy there to diet. So that's something I think people can understand pretty easily that if you, if you eat the same six foods, even if they're really healthy foods and you eat those yeah. at every meal every day, that's going to have an imp a negative impact on your health because you need a diversity of nutrients from a broad spectrum of foods in order to really thrive. And it sound, it's a very similar concept to what you're saying yeah. with movement, where if you, to use a silly example, if you're just to do bicep curls and that was your only form of exercise, right. you would end up um, not getting the full benefits of movement in addition to looking probably quite strange um, with Sorry. large biceps and nothing else, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that is fit in, in your body. So uh, I don't think that's gotten a lot of attention, though. I, I think it's easy for us to fall into habitual patterns of movement. You know, I, I, I many people who just go and do the same routine at the gym and and that might also kind of tie back to what we were talking about earlier is they, they haven't found a kind of their jam to use your terms or, or their own kind of inspiration. And so they're just really doing it almost like they would brush their teeth or, or some other thing that they know is good for them. They've, they're reconciled to doing it and good on, good on them for, for doing sure. it. But, you know, it's lacking that variation because there's not that sense of spark or inspiration there. Yeah, variation is key. And, and just like eating, there's 
parts that you enjoy and parts that maybe you don't enjoy as much, but they're all nutrient. I mean, that's what a nutrient is, is it's an essential, it's a non-negotiable intake. You might choose not to take it, but there's a consequence for not taking it. I mean, that's, that's how they get classified that way. So yeah, there's definitely more mundane movements, but there's ways to make them more enjoyable as well. I'm so excited that we launched my new supplement line, Adapt Naturals, last week. We started with the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that work together to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. The Core Plus Bundle was formulated using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Most of us have patched together a cupboard full of supplements without a clear strategy or plan. The Core Plus Bundle has been carefully curated to give you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. The five products in Core Plus support your health from A to Z, from cellular and immune health to brain and nervous system support to blood sugar and heart health. I wanted to provide my readers and listeners with a way to benefit from my 15 years of clinical experience and research without working with me one-on-one -on -one as a patient. And Core Plus is that solution. Also, for a limited time only, we're providing free access to the Adapt Naturals Core Reset app to anyone who orders the Core Plus bundle. As powerful as our supplements are, they can't take the place of a healthy diet and lifestyle. The Core Reset app is designed to help you dial in your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management so you have a strong foundation to build on with the Core Plus supplement bundle. To learn more and place your first order, head over to adaptnaturals.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-Naturals.com. So I want to talk a little bit about kids. I think we both share a passion for um, importance of movement with kids. And, and you know, the, we, we've talked, you know, briefly about the downsides of sedentary behavior for adults. But of course, a kid is a lot younger than an adult, has many more years of their lifetime ahead of them and thus the consequences of of being sedentary for kids can be in some ways even greater than the consequences for adults and you know i, I think about traditional schools and how they're set up where a kid is is at, you know in a classroom generally um, sitting at a desk for the vast majority of their day they might have something called pe uh, which has varying levels of success and interest for kids because often it's the same kind of, you know, it can be this sort of rote activities that are not inspiring or not tailored towards the kid's particular interests. And, and I think what you talked about before can come up if a, if a kid isn't naturally a great athlete or isn't, doesn't excel at sports, then maybe they just sort of walk around the edges of the gym uh, during PE and they don't really have a good experience. So how in that, in this kind of environment, which is the reality, for most kids, can we encourage and facilitate a better relationship with movement? Oh, I mean, I took a whole book to answer that question because, because there are many different 
ways to do it. But just to go back to your point, because I think it's a really important one to stress, sedentary behavior in children has more consequences than sedentary behavior in adults. I mean, just mechanically speaking, you are setting your adult body in childhood. Like you're not just growing out of that phase and then um, can make changes when you get older. You are, you are setting the cap on many things. Bone is one of them, right? That bone is the easiest example for people to understand mechanical arguments. So the fact that that how you load your bones in childhood or the juvenile period sets the capacity for how you can load them as you get older. That's something important to consider. Um, how do you do it? I mean, I like to go by container. Like, so I like there's, there's so many different approaches um, that you can take or areas of your life that you can address. Um, do you want me to go container by container or just? Yeah, no, that would be great. Well, so I wrote Grow Wild in order of containers because I was imagining people would probably most often say that time is the biggest hurdle that they have. Like they can't see where movement fits in as far as time goes, because again, they're thinking exercise. They're thinking of something that happens outside of all of their rest of their life um, where nothing else is being accomplished except for physical betterment. That's one of the biggest limitations of exercise is because it is something that you do oftentimes in isolation of all of your other to-dos, there's no way to really ramp up to the volume that you need, right? Like, because we have many other needs. Now, um, throughout the human timeline, movement was not done as exercise. It was done alongside all of the other activities that we needed to do. And so my, in general, that's my approach is put the movement back into the activities that used to hold it so that you are still meeting the other needs that you have in your life while also getting movement at the same time. So by container, I started with culture. Um, culture is a pretty big container. That chapter has a lot to do with the rules that you have. Um, let's just, for children, let's talk about in your home. What are the rules that you have in your home that encourage or discourage movement? What's your implicit and explicit rules? So you might not even know the assumptions that you hold around how children should behave, what physical motion is okay, what's considered too loud or rowdy or dangerous. So understanding your relationship as the allo parent, not just for parents, it could be like teachers listening, therapists, um, anyone who, is involved in a space that has children should take themselves through the bias check-in in that section, which are, what are your rules? Ask the children that are in your space what they think the rules are, because chances are that you have rules that you're imparting that you're not even aware that you're imparting. So open that discussion. Second is clothing. We spend a lot of times surrounding our body with casing that doesn't allow our joints to articulate well. It's sort of like a daily costume that you put on. And my famous quote is not famous, but the quote that I often see that I said um, sort of being circulated around on social media is if you have exercise clothes, what are all of your other clothes then? Um, because we call them exercise clothes, but we don't call the rest sedentary clothes. Like we don't call the pants or the jackets that we put on or the shoes that we put on that don't allow our arms to go overhead or you can't crouch down or bend or you wouldn't be able to walk a few miles in the shoes that you wear. Like these 
or without realizing it's something that we do to discourage ourselves from moving all day long. But in children, they, children who often move more creatively and robustly are, can be impacted by a pair of jeans that you thought was cute, but doesn't actually allow their legs to step up to the next rung or rain boots that are, or snow boots that are um, heavy, but don't allow their ankles to articulate. So now they're clumsy and can't balance and fall off stuff more often. So just understanding that clothing is um, it's the second largest container because you get dressed after you wake up in your culture and you're putting on your clothes. That's really fascinating. I mean, I, I haven't thought much about that, but uh, the recent like skinny jeans trend is probably is, is terrible, <laughs> I think, for, for movement and people who want to be fluid in their bodies. Well, I just don't even think we consider it. I mean, that's a challenge with yeah. the sedentary culture is the sedentary culture doesn't call itself sedentary. You know, like that, like that's not written anywhere down except for, you know, some of my books, maybe it's not all, it's not our most glorious descriptive uh, food. Food is the next large container because again, um, you know, movement and food have been the axis of culture forever. And they are, they are still an axis of, of our culture. Um, but the way that we have set up food, as we previously mentioned, has taken all the movement out of it. So you've got these, these main threads that are sort of biological imperatives and we've moved them out of culture or the culture is getting rid of the thing that sort of defined humans for so long. And so because there is so much movement to food, whether you're talking about um, starting a garden, learning foraging, um, cooking out, just cooking things from scratch, finding an old recipe that is your individual family's culture, your, your heritage, you know, and spending the time to cook it from scratch to not only get the, all the movement that goes into it, but um, passing along that, that thread of where you and then thus your children come from, um, connecting them to their elders, if you will. It could be walking to the grocery store. It could be taking your food on a picnic instead of eating it inside. It could be sitting on the floor. So floor sitting is one of those non-exercise physical activities that's gotten a lot of attention um, because we tend to do most of our sitting in, again, a technology that allows us to outsource. Really anything the musculoskeletal system has to do to hold us is outsourced to what you choose to take your rest on, where a large portion of the world will rest on its own skeleton and thus still be active even during the rest period, which is a little paradoxical, but meaning like sitting to squat or even sitting up where you're holding yourself on the ground, holding your own torso, uses the musculoskeletal system and expends calories. Not, there's no relationship between exercise and intensity. Um, it can be low, lower intensity and still count as exercise and still meet those um, qualifications. But there's so much that you can do with food because it's on everyone's mind all of the time. Why not make that a movement rich environment in some, in some way? Yeah. I love that. And, and, you know, like we said before, it's, it's fallen out of a favor. Um, but it's, you know, I, I can even just think back to my own childhood. I, um, there was a lot of food preparation that went on in our house. And I remember period, long periods of standing in the kitchen, chopping stuff, mixing stuff together. And that was just kind of built in to my experience growing up. But 
it's totally possible now that the kid could have none of that, you know, just take out and delivery food and very little relationship with that process of, of being physically and manually involved in, in food making or food sourcing, you know, collecting mushrooms or growing food or whatever. Yeah. Well, it's like, we're not really, we're not, we've, we have like this generation has got the biggest deficit when it comes to understanding where food even comes from. And then of course the side effect of that is a poor nutrition. They go together. And so what we're trying to do is boost everyone's nutrition on um, an individual, but also a government level. But meanwhile, we're not really talking about the root of the problem, which is we're not participating in where food comes from anymore. So of course that knowledge really comes when you put the two of them together. Like that's, that's good. It's, it's good at letting um, the lessons permeate. And I, I am um, fortunate to get to work with a lot of school children. Um, and I always like when I, you know, for anyone who volunteers in a school, I always like to volunteer around food or cooking because, or, or, or ra rather I will make whatever I'm supposed to volunteer. I will make it about food where I will bring in some old ancient, like three ingredient um, activity, talk about the plants, what it was like to harvest, including the movements and then have them make it and then have them eat it. And children who are normally very picky eaters in a dinner time context are so enthralled by seeing something grow, seeing something picked, seeing something being made that they will eat it because it is now on their terms. You know, like you've made it more their jam if we're gonna go with the language of this podcast now at this point. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, food, food to me is the, the easiest place to start moving more and tackle more of the non-movement things that you wanted to do. Improve diet, learn more about nature, learn more about uh, the food system at the same time. So one of the biggest obstacles that I see with kids and movement is the proliferation of digital technologies in their lives. Um, so that could be everything from video games to, you know, just screens, social media, Instagram, you know, depending on the age of the kid and how they're using it. You know, I struggle with this because I'm, I'm not a Luddite, although sometimes I, I lean in that direction. <laughs> um, and, and I see the value of, of a lot of these technologies when they're, you know, used appropriately. But I'm also just acutely aware of the risks and the potential for abuse and the potential. Uh, and when I say abuse, I mean, that, that can go from like minor impacts to absolutely devastating, you sure. know, li life change, cha life altering course, uh, mm -hmm. ch uh, changing impacts. Um, and it's, it's a struggle. I mean, I think for any parent who's a parent in this society at this point in time, they're negotiating this and they're, they're, they're making decisions about it. They're, they're dealing with it in some form or another. Uh, but it seems to me that a, an increasing, like when I was a kid, a lot of my social life re revolved around movement, you know, so it was, let's go out to this place, which meant getting dropped off and then walking somewhere, let's go down to the beach, let's go surfing together, let's play a sport together, let's, you know, almost everything that I did with friends involved some kind of movement or activity. And now, I mean, certainly there's still kids for whom that's true, but there is an increasing social locus around the phone or, or, or digital devices. And sometimes a, a tension that I've seen is, 
a parent is aware of that. The parent wants the kid to, sh to do more active things, but then the kid feels like if they don't, if they, if they don't participate in the, the social activity of digital technology, then they won't have friends or they will be sort of ostracized from their peer group. I don't know. I mean, you've thought a lot about this. Like, what are, what are some of the things that you recommend for, for parents? You know, I, we have a more, slightly more draconian approach where we just really restrict the use of these technologies with, with our child. That's a choice that we've made. But I know for a lot of parents, that's not for various reasons, the choice they want to make. And they're looking for some path forward that, you know, that can get their kid out and about and moving um, while still allowing them to feel like they're part of the culture. Yeah. There's a lot there. We could do an entire podcast. Yeah, we or should, three. And we should. <laughs> yeah. we should do a whole one. Um, yeah. So I guess for context, um, I'll just give this. So my children are uh, nine and 11. That helps. Also for context, we are the first generation of parents having to deal with this. Yeah. Right. Um, it's not clear what the path forward is. And it's also equally not clear what the outcomes are going to be. So there is, there is no certainty anywhere. So like, that's just all the context that I always say. And it's also, um, I can only speak to my experience. So I'll just give some examples of some of the things that we've done. I mean, similarly, we too have not gone down the, oh, I don't even, it's challenging because I think that there's a difference between the device and what's on the device. So the more you know me, the more you'll know that I'm always needing to um, parse everything down into the elements. So I really will break up the device from the media. I can't really speak too much from the media because I don't know anything about media besides what every other parent who took an interest would know. But devices, as a biomechanist, I can tell you the effect of devices on position and movement, right? So like that's more what I'm talking about. So early on, we, we, we do very little, we've always done very little media. Like we're a, we are a no TV household. Like, so like, that's also the perspective of these are the choices that we made early on. And we chose to start there rather than have to take a household that's already media rich and reduce it. I don't know anything about that. So I think that that's a lot of times what people are saying is like, I started on a different path. Now I want to adjust. And a lot of my advice would come from someone who made that choice early on. But I will say this is this has been something that's been going in, in our community. And I guess I'll give one more thing. I don't think that parenting was ever meant to be done by two or three or four people and their children. I think it's always been my the last chapter of Grow Wild is about allo parenting. And like that might be the largest feature that we're missing from the environment right now. The fact that so many things were done in a community and as we've moved away from community, and I don't think that devices are not related to that. Like I think that the adult use of device, um, the adult, adult use of technology or media has made it so we need fewer people. We just need our device. And then of course the millions of people that our device depends on, but, but we don't need anyone local to us who know our children. So in our community, I've spent a lot of time developing a community. One thing I realized is as the kids move into preteen time, they're very, they step away from their parents being everything and their peers being everything. That's a given. So, you know, you know, the more you know about child um, development is 
they need to step away from their parents. Where I stepped away, I'm 46, also just for context, um, where I stepped away was to my peers. And how I did that was at school, before school, after school, always outside, always moving around. Like we had our own space and time. We, we needed to be away from adults almost, or at least feeling like the adults were controlling the environment. That's a natural step. What's happened is children, as they, people are moving to that step, they don't have any means for communication anymore. So like the thing that I just brought up at our little community group hangout the other day was, hey, if no kid has a landline, then there's no way that they can call each other or talk to each other, just like we all did, unless, can I use your phone? Can I borrow your phone? Can I just, I just wanna text someone really fast. So you get this issue of one, every single child now needing a phone, every preteen needing a phone, and then also um, not even talking, texting, which is yep. a completely different, um, I'm gonna say it's, um, it, well, we'll just say that it's not equal to conversation. And then I can see children who are not used to talking to someone on the phone, to having physical conversations, like the skill of conversation is out. So our group, you know, we all decided like, right, we don't have landlines. We, we took away a thing or we're, we're, want, we're hesitant about giving them the thing, but we also didn't realize that we obliterated the thing that was there before, the lower tech thing. And so that has been a solution where now, you know, the kid, whatever they want, I want to talk to my friends, like, my great, give them a call. And they're memorizing phone numbers, another skill set that yeah. I have noticed dwindling down, you know? So that was, that's like, that was an example of just something that we came up as a community, but I mean, it's analog sort of, um, but I think that we forget that we've made an environment where the thing that the child needs doesn't exist anymore, except to pass through the phone. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm smiling because we have the same, we have landlines here. Actually, yeah. I'm probably the only person I know that has landline phone <laughs> at this point. Yeah. And you now, but there's a couple of things that, that struck me about what you said and that I've thought about a lot. My wife and I have talked about, and we, we will have to do another show on kids because I think it's absolutely vital um, that we talk about this in more detail, but it, there's the difference between the tool and the competency or capacity that, that is needed to use that tool. Sure. So you mentioned that, you know, when you take away the landline and you enable texting, you don't just take away the tool and the technology, you take away the, the, the capacity to have a conversation. And I read, there's a book called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle from MIT, who's been studying the impact of digital technology since the 1980s, I think. Um, and it was a powerful book that really made a big impact on me because it was it was a, a sort of aha moment of wow that we're raising generations of kids who don't know to have uh, how to have a conversation either in person or on the phone because those are skills that they have not had to develop because they're relying on text-based digital communication you know what are what are the consequences of that um we don't really know uh, but we're seeing some significant downsides i think we can all agree there and i mean another thing with the landline is People don't even know what those are. <laughs> like I, some some of our daughter's friends try to text the landline, you know, and they're like, "Why isn't what's happening here? Why 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 am I not getting a response?" So, 
it just strikes me that, you know, we, we're part of an ecosystem and a context, and we have control over certain elements of that context and ecosystem and an ability to influence certain elements. And there are certain elements that we, we don't have full control over, and we're just, we just have to learn how to respond to in an appropriate way that's consistent with our values. And, um, you know, I think that's a challenge for us as individuals in this society, for, for, for us as parents, and of course, for our kids, you know, learning how to navigate this, this like crazy and ever changing landscape. Um, it's hard enough to be a kid and then to have all of this layered on top is, um, I think, an additional challenge that I didn't have to deal with when when I was a kid. So it, it, I'm sure every generation looks back and said, oh, it was much simpler when I was a kid. And perhaps that's true. But I think there is something to the growing complexity of all of these. And then tying this back to the topic of the show, how that has actually impacted kids' experience of themselves in their bodies, their relationship with their body, their self-image in their body, and how they relate to movement overall is very much influenced by all these digital technologies. So Katie, thank you for this fascinating conversation. Um, can you tell everybody where they can learn more about, I think you've written eight books now, is it? So many. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's amazing. You can find me at Nutritious Movement com, And then from there, you can find uh, anything else that you're looking for. If you're a listener, you can, you know, if you're an audiophile, there's podcasts or audiobooks. If you like to read, there's, you know, like we said, an abundant number of books and hundreds of articles curated by topic. And then, of course, social media for regular glimpses of it, things in action. Yeah. Great. Well, I highly recommend the books. We've got a few of them here at home. And um, my wife is a Feldenkrais practitioner. I'm not sure if you knew that, but um, it's, you know, movement and how we inhabit our bodies is a big theme in her life and in our life and has been a big part of it's even how we met originally. So it's I really appreciate the um, nuanced and holistic approach to movement that you take and and how your work encourages us to more fully inhabit our our body. And I think via that, uh, inhabit our humanity because I, I think that movement is kind of inseparable from 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 being human. We're try we've tried pretty hard to separate it in the society and the built environment, but that you know you really can't talk about being human without talking about movement. So I uh, really appreciate all the work you've done there. Thank you. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. Keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com/podcastquestion, and we'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.